The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Well, it's now, if you would please, to Acts chapter 19. And uh, I think we have a well-worn path to this particular scripture since tonight is the sixth sermon that we've had on this subject, Who is the Holy Spirit? And we're not so much spending uh, time on the doctrinal inferences that we find there in the beginning of Acts chapter 19, and there are several that we could talk about, but we're only using one part of that scripture which shows that there is confusion and there is ignorance uh, about who the Holy Spirit is. Now, I mentioned in the second message that the Holy Spirit has been called the forgotten person of the Godhead, and that is because there's so little that's known about him. Uh, The Puritan Thomas Goodwin said, There is a general omission in the saints of God, and they're not giving the Holy Spirit that glory that is due his person, and for his great work of salvation in us, insomuch that we have in our hearts almost forgotten this third person. George Smeaton wrote in 1880, We may safely affirm that the doctrine of the Spirit is almost entirely ignored. Now that's an interesting statement because I think if if Smeaton were alive today, he would greatly, he would be greatly surprised that the work of the Holy Spirit is not ignored, but it is twisted and confused so that the greatest dishonor possible is done to the Holy Spirit. And he would better have been forgotten than to have uh, all of the things that are said about him today abused by so many that are in the charismatic uh, movement. Now, I'm going to save that for later. I, I have a message that's coming up at another time in which we're going to discuss the abuses against the Holy Spirit. And then we'll have uh, an opportunity to see how the modern movements that emphasize the Spirit are are not only wrong, but they're actually blasphemous in their claims about the Holy Spirit's work. So it's really amazing how that Satan can go from one extreme to another. Uh, In the the early days, uh, or in in the time of of Thomas Goodwin, the Puritan, when he wrote, uh, there was uh, an, an ignorance of the Holy Spirit because of people had ignored him and today the the opposite is true the holy spirit is shouted from the housetops and what's said about him is the wrong thing so what we're doing here is exploring the scriptures to see who the holy spirit is and the part that he plays in our salvation and also the part that he plays in our daily lives as christians we can't afford not to know him As one writer said, the great thing in Christianity is the gift of the Spirit, the essential, vital, central element in the life of the soul and the work of the church is the person of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you want to look for just a moment there at your text verses, uh, I'm not going to read them all the way through again, but there were some disciples that Paul met in Ephesus, and he asked them in verse number 2, have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? And they said unto him, we've not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Spirit. Now, these were called believers, but they were not aware that the Holy Spirit had come at Pentecost, and since Pentecost, he'd begun a new work in the lives of believers. Now, let's go to our outline, and I think everybody's 
pretty much everybody's been here throughout this study. Uh, but if you haven't, we'll look at this outline very briefly, and we, you have a lot of catching up to do on some things. Uh, I've used the same outline for five previous messages, so we can't go through it all. But let me just give you these, these first headings, and then we'll resume where we left off in the last message. First of all, the Holy Spirit is a person. That is not an impersonal force, but he possesses all the characteristics of a person. Secondly, the Holy Spirit is deity. He's known as the third person of the Trinity. And that doesn't mean that he's third in rank and in power, but as usual, he's referred to in the third place. So he is equal in power to both the Father and the Son, and all three of them are one God. Thirdly, the Holy Spirit is God's agent. Uh, In the present time, it is the Holy Spirit who is the part of the Godhead that is active in the world. And that's been the case since creation, with, with the only exceptions being when we had someone else of the Godhead in the world would be the pre-manifestations of Christ that we find in the Old Testament. And then, of course, the incarnation in the New when Jesus came to become a sacrifice for our sins. But all, at all other times, the Holy Spirit is the one who is the agent of God's work in the world. Then we noted four areas in which the Spirit has worked or is working. He is the agent in the ministry of creation, that God created the world by the administration of the Holy Spirit. He is the agent in the ministry of Christ. When Christ came into the world, it was the Holy Spirit that was the seed of God that impregnated the Virgin Mary. And throughout the life of Christ, it was the Holy Spirit that aided him, sustained him in his trials, was there in all of his miracles, and gave him the power to do those. And according to Scripture, it is the Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. Then he is the agent in the ministry of the canon. The Holy Spirit was God's agent in the writing of Scripture. That inspired men to write the words of God so that when we read the Bible, we read what God intended to say to man. And there are no other words that God intended to say to us. There is no other revelation than what we have in the Holy Scriptures contained in the completed canon of Scripture. Fourthly, he is the agent in the ministry of the Christian. And that's where we left off the last time. And we're looking into the many different ways that the Holy Spirit works in the life of a Christian. So he begins his work in us by regeneration. That's the new birth. And that's when the Holy Spirit begins to work beneath the consciousness of a lost person. And he brings him to the point of repentance and faith. Now that is a secretive work of God. We don't know when that work is going on until the Holy Spirit, in conjunction with the preaching of the gospel, causes a person to realize that he is a sinner and that he must come to Jesus Christ, repent of his sins, and place his faith in him. And so that work is the Holy Spirit's work and his alone, and then that person turns from his sin and trusts Christ. Secondly, we see that he works in the Christian in sanctification. Uh, Sanctification means to be set apart to God. It means to be made holy. And sanctification is a change in a person's moral standing. Upon our belief in Christ, we are sanctified in position. And that means at the moment that we trust Christ and we're saved from our sins, that we are fit right then to come into the presence of God. That there would be nothing else that needs to be done, but if we were to die at that moment, we would be able to go into heaven. That's what we call our positional sanctification. 
But as we all know, we're still living in the flesh and we have this sinful nature that we endure every day as we're in the world. And so in our daily walk with God, we need another type of sanctification. And that is a progressive work. Progressive sanctification is where we we live in the power of the Holy Spirit and we are enabled to do the works that God would have us to do. Then thirdly, we talked about glorification. The Holy Spirit is involved in our glorification. And glorification is the change in the body from corruption to incorruption. That occurs at the resurrection of the body in the second coming. And this is when all the dead saints are raised and their bodies are changed to a body that is like the Lord Jesus Christ. And at that time, uh, living bodies will also be changed. Those who are believers will be translated and given a body that's like Christ, translated into the likeness of Christ. And that means that our bodies will be rid of the sinful nature that we have now, and the body will be rejoined with our spirit that's in heaven, and there we will live in the complete perfection of God. And so the Holy Spirit is there at the inception of, of a Christian salvation. He's there throughout his entire life all the way to the completion of his cha- the change of his body in glorification. Now, I want to go just a little bit further tonight, and we're kind of taking this thing slow to work our way through this, but I want to go back and explore a little bit more about what happens during the middle part of our lives, or that is between regeneration and glorification. And this is the part about sanctification, and I want us to see here some things that are going on during the sanctifying process. See, the Holy Spirit is always at work in the believer. He's tireless. So that there is never a time when we're without him. He never departs from us. He's always active in us. There isn't a time when he isn't. We belong to God and the Holy Spirit is never going to leave us alone. And we need to be thankful that he doesn't. Because if the Holy Spirit was ever to leave a saved person, that would be the end of his salvation. Because that's what keeps us on our way to heaven. In our daily living, we must live in the sanctification of the Spirit. Now, I have four areas that I want to discuss concerning the agency uh, of the spirit and the ministry of the Christian. And we'll just get to this next one here tonight, and then we'll take up some more later. But number four in our list is communication. The Holy Spirit is active in the life of a believer as he communicates with God. Now, all communication with God takes place in what way? Anybody know? Prayer. All communication with God takes place in prayer. Now, that means that God is not going to show up in your bedroom. God's not going to meet you at the breakfast table. You're not going to be able to talk audibly with God in this way that he appears before you. Your communication with God always takes place in prayer. Now, prayer uh, is not just a one-time thing or, or, or something that takes place, uh, say, one time a day or uh, once every few days or once a week or something like that. You communicate with God all of the time. Now, we don't say that a person cannot communicate with God only when he gets down on his knees and and prays, not only when he comes to church, not only when he can get alone to get into a prayer closet and meet with God there, but every thought, every time in, in any part, in any place, any conscious thought that we have about God, that is communication of prayer. Now, it's important for us to understand that that's the way it is because the Holy Spirit aids that form of communication. The Bible says that we are to pray without ceasing, 
And so it has to be obvious that prayer is a communication that is beyond those times that we are formally in a position of prayer. But I don't want you to misunderstand me about that. It doesn't mean that you satisfy God by just merely going along throughout the day and saying, well, God is, is okay with me because he reads my thoughts and I don't need to do anything more than that. God just reads my thoughts and I'm in communication with him. That's not what I mean. There also has to be conscious times of prayer. There have to be times when you set aside a time specifically to talk to God and you pour out your heart to him and you are sincere in a very determined way. You want to speak with God. But the rest of the time, the Holy Spirit is still with you. He keeps you in fellowship and in communion so that you're able to feel God's presence no matter where you are. Now let me remind you of this scripture in Romans 8.26. The Apostle Paul wrote, Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit itself maketh intercessions for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now I want to take a look at that scripture and see if we could understand just a little bit better what the Apostle is saying. In the first message when I preached on the Holy Spirit, I was asked this question. Is it all right to pray to the Holy Spirit? Now, I know that there are some who would answer the question differently than I do. So uh, let me say this up front. I don't think that I have a corner on all truth when it comes to prayer. So if somebody has a little bit different idea than I have, that's okay with me as long as it's not anti-scriptural. But it seems to me that in a formal sense that Jesus taught the disciples to always direct their prayers to the Father and to pray in his name, that is in Jesus' name. The model prayer that we have in Matthew where Jesus was teaching the apostles, he said, you start this way, our Father which art in heaven. That's a prayer that's directed to the Father. And then later on he taught the disciples, whatsoever ye shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it you. Now, I don't think, though, that there is a strict commandment that says absolutely not that you cannot pray to Jesus, you cannot pray to the Holy Spirit. Because whenever you say something like, thank you, Jesus, you're communicating with with him, aren't you? Obviously, you're directing your your, uh, prayer to him. Whenever we sing the song, like we will in just a few minutes after the sermon, come, Holy Spirit, I need thee. Come, sweet Spirit, I pray. Well, it's obvious there that we're directing our thoughts towards the Holy Spirit. So don't be confused when I talk about the formal way to prayers, to address your prayers to the Father. I do think that is correct, but you can communicate with God in other ways too because all of our prayers are to the triune God. Now, going back to Romans 8.26, Paul said, Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. Now, that would tell you there that there is a problem with our ability to approach God in the right way. And so we look at the Spirit's work, first of all, in this way in prayer, that he deals with human frailty, that he takes care of this problem that we have of meeting with God. Now, you'll notice here that Paul doesn't elaborate on any specific weakness because there are some areas in which Christians are are better or worse than others. Some are weaker than others. Some have more faith than others. Some are deeper thinkers than others. Some are more compassionate than others. But while some might be better at this, all of us have trouble when we pray. And that's because we come to a holy, infinite God 
while still having a sinful nature. And we're fraught with all sorts of human limitations. We're finite beings and we could never hope that we could reach the infinite God on his level. And then we also have a problem knowing and doing God's will. We can't even understand the perfect will of God because the scripture says that God's ways are past finding out. And so when you come to God, you don't have knowledge of future events. You, you don't know how that God can work all things out for your good. So in other words, we don't know what's best for us all of the time. Charles Hodge notes that heathen philosophers use that as an excuse to teach people not to pray. But the Bible says that we should pray. And because we're frail, when we come to God, we have imperfect prayers. Now, sometimes that's deliberate. Sometimes it's selfish. Uh, James addressed that. And he said that there are some prayers that we pray, that we ask things because we want to consume it upon our lust, that we're looking for what we want. We want to promote self rather than the glory of God. And so the Holy Spirit is not there to help you in those kinds of prayers. The Holy Spirit's not interested in those. But there are other times, and should be most times, that our prayers are very sincere, and we come to God, and we may unintentionally ask for the wrong things. Or we may not say things in the right way, and those are the kinds of prayers that need to be corrected. So we have this spiritual need, and we don't even begin to understand what, what to ask about sometimes. Human frailty, then, spurs the Holy Spirit of God, into action for us as we begin to pray. So we see then that there is spiritual ability, that when we are unable, we have the Holy Spirit who is abundantly able to help us. Now in 1 Corinthians, Paul said that the Spirit searches the deep things of God because he is God, he has the mind of God, he knows the perfect will of God. And so the Holy Spirit, when you pray, performs a spiritual work in which he perfects that prayer and articulates your need so that God can answer that prayer. We find in the scripture that it says that there are groanings, that there is turmoil. There's a rumbling in our spirit as we search for the right way to communicate with God. And commentators are divided about what that groaning is. Some say that it is the Holy Spirit that is the one that groans and, and that this is a secretive work of God that goes on that we're not actually privy to. And then there are others that say, no, that those groanings are ours. And these are our deepest sighs that we really can't express in language the way that we want to. And so the Spirit is there to make intercession for us, that he articulates our need. And as he does that, he teaches us how to pray. Now it's interesting that the disciples came to Jesus and they asked him to teach them to pray. Now they were used to hearing the sanctimonious prayers of the scribes and the Pharisees. They weren't men that didn't know something about prayer because prayer was a very common thing. They heard it every day. People were always praying. But when they heard Jesus, they saw something different. They were used to those self-aggrandizing prayers like that Pharisee in Luke chapter 18. But as they heard Jesus pray, there, there was a deep sorrow in his soul. There was this unusual compassion they'd not heard before. There was an earnestness in his prayers. And it was obvious to them that there was something radically different about the way that Jesus prayed. His prayers were meaningful and they were effectual. And so they asked him, teach us to pray. They wanted to pray in that same power that Jesus had. 
Well, obviously, we don't have the benefit of having Jesus here personally to teach us how to pray. We're not able to sit and listen to him pray. So how do we learn? Well, the Holy Spirit is God's agent in the world. And the Holy Spirit teaches us to pray. See, every time that you go to the Lord in prayer, there's a little bit of perfection that's going on to get those prayers where they need to be. It's as simple as this, folks. The more that you pray, the better you are at it. The more that you pray, the more you learn how you should pray because the Holy Spirit is always teaching us. Now, there are some people who think that long prayers are the best prayers. Somebody has also said that the best way to kill a prayer meeting is for everybody to pray long prayers. You know, I remember when I was a child that my father made me attend all of the prayer meetings uh, so when we had revival meetings, and I always had to go to those prayer meetings. And we'd have one or two weeks of prayer in the members' homes before revivals. And uh, we would go to the homes, and the men and women would split up. And my dad would take me to the men's prayer room. I'd go with them. My mom would take my little sister to the women's prayer room, and off they would go. And I remember um, in this country church where you know, I grew up in that these old country gentlemen, these farmers, would pray some of the longest prayers that you ever heard. And I was just a child, and just listening to that, it seemed like it took forever for them to get done praying. It seemed like eternity. So I had to invent little games to occupy myself while they are praying. So I had a watch with a second hand on it, and so as they prayed, I began to time and I'd listen, and I'd listen, and I'd watch my watch, and I had this vision in my mind that I was going to give a prize to the person who, pay, who prayed the longest prayer. Well, the longest prayers aren't necessarily the best ones. You, you all know the examples of, uh, in the New Testament, like Peter, when, when uh, he started to sink. He said, Lord, save me. That was a short, simple prayer, a very effective one because it worked. But long prayers aren't always the best prayers. But I do remember this, that since that time, I don't think that I've ever heard anybody that was able to pray like those old farmers could as they prayed for God to send revival in the church. There was just something very special about the contact that they had with God, the feeling that they could express in their prayers. And I learned a lot of things through that as a, as a young boy, even though I may have been bored somewhat because uh, as kids are, you, you just can't sit there. But, but I learned something from that. And just as an aside to that story, uh, there's one that James Montgomery Boyce told about long and short prayers. And, and this was during the ministry of George Whitfield and John Wesley. This is what Boyce wrote. He said, at one point in the course of their very influential ministries, George Whitfield, the Calvinist evangelist, and John Wesley, the Arminian evangelist, were preaching together in the daytime and rooming together in the same boarding house each night. One evening, after a particular strenuous day, the two of them returned to the boarding house exhausted and prepared for bed. When they were ready, each knelt beside the bed to pray. Whitfield prayed like this, Lord, we thank thee for all of those with whom we spoke today, and we rejoice that their lives and destinies are entirely in thy hand. Honor our efforts according to thy perfect will. Amen. He rose from his knees and got into bed. Wesley, who had hardly gotten past the invocation of his prayer in this length of time, looked up from his side of the bed and said, Mr. Whitfield, is this where your Calvinism leads you? Then he put his head down and went on praying. Whitfield stayed in bed and went to sleep. 
About two hours later, Whitfield woke up and there was Wesley still on his knees beside his bed. So Whitfield got up and went around the bed to where Wesley was kneeling. When he got there, he found Wesley asleep. He shook him by the shoulders and said to him, Mr. Wesley, is this where your Arminianism leads you? Well, anyway, the long and short of that is we need the Holy Spirit to guide our prayers. And we need him to help us to ask for what is right and in the will of God. Now, we notice thirdly concerning Romans chapter 8, how the Holy Spirit's, with the Holy Spirit's help in communication, that there are practical results. Now, if you look at Romans 8.23, it says, And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, grown within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body. How does a Christian find peace and contentment in the midst of a troubled life? And when Jesus said those that follow him would be destined for persecution, when he said that there was suffering that would come, when there would be desertion of family, when there was sword instead of peace, a sword instead of peace, how, how does a Christian actually maintain his hope in those, in those such times like that? And further, how do you ever convince somebody to become a Christian when this is the inevitable outcome of their faith? I mean, this is what will happen if you trust Christ. Well, we actually find the answer in this verse because when a Christian prays, we see that he has an avenue to God, that there is a line of communication that's open, that he receives his assurance from God, that God will faithfully perform the promise that he made. You know, I've been preaching in Matthew there in that 16th chapter about the, the gain that follows the pain. We know that the pain is there, but as we're living through the pain, sometimes we wonder whatever happened to the gain. Well, that's why we have the Holy Spirit, because he shows us and makes us believe and causes us to understand that the gain is coming, that even though we are going through these hard things in our lives, that God has made the promise that he will redeem our body, that there is coming a time when this is all going to be over with. We won't have to worry about it anymore. That's the promise from God, and the Holy Spirit is given to us in order that we might very clearly have that feeling and understanding and know this, that what God is saying is true. And so the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit witnesses with our spirit that we are the children of God. And that makes our hope sure and steadfast. So when you find Christians that are constantly worried about things and wringing their hands all of the time and they say, woe is me, well, you've found a Christian whose prayer life is inadequate. And we're all guilty of that at times. All of us are guilty of it. And this is why a standard answer in counseling sessions is always this. Pray. And when you're through praying, pray some more. Some years ago, I had a very faithful Christian who was in my office and came for counseling. And he had a problem. And it was a very serious problem. And we sat down and he asked me what he should do about it. Well, I know I knew that he'd been saved for a long time. And so I just said to him, you already know what I'm going to tell you. Well, he knew what he was doing was wrong, and he, he knew what he should do. He needed to confess his sin and to pray about it. And so he knew what I was going to say, and I knew what I was going to say. And so when I said that to him, he said, thanks. I just needed to be reminded to keep praying. See, here's what you need to learn about prayer. That prayer may not get you out of a problem. You may pray about things and 
You may have health issues. You may have financial problems. And when you pray to the Lord, your answer to that prayer may not be a clean bill of health. And your answer from the Lord may not be that you're going to get a new car and a new house or anything like that. Your answer might be God saying to you, I can teach you to be content with the things that you have. God can say to you, I can teach you to live in joy and peace despite your troubles because you know that I am in control. That's the best peace that you could ever have in your heart, to know that God is in control because you know this, you can't do better than God. You you wouldn't want to direct all the affairs of your life because you can't do better than God. He's not going to go, go wrong by you. He teaches you in the things that he does. Now, I'd like you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and we're going to read a a great passage of Scripture here. Uh, If you're experiencing trouble in your life, things are really bothering you, then you need to read this, and you need to see what Paul went through and how he handled this. In 2 Corinthians 4, beginning at verse number 8, he said, We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed but not in despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, cast down, but not destroyed, always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. Now you'll notice that there is a lot of trouble in those verses, isn't there? And it only gets worse, at least from a human perspective, because next Paul says, For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. And what Paul is saying there is that because of the preaching of the cross, because he, was, he would not give up on that, that it didn't matter what the opposition was, that he was always preaching Jesus Christ, that that made him a candidate for death all of the time. People are always seeking to kill Paul. That's bad. But then he goes on. He says, So then death worketh in us, but life in you. We having the same spirit of faith, according as it is written, I believed and therefore have I spoken. We also believe and therefore speak, knowing that he which raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise up us also by Jesus and shall present us with you. Now, you know who he's talking about in, those last, in that last verse? He's speaking of the Holy Spirit. And he says, we have our confidence in the Spirit that he's working in us. Do you remember who raised Jesus from the dead? That was the Holy Spirit. He worked in him from the time that he was born. He worked in him throughout his life. And he kept working until Jesus was raised from the dead. Paul is saying that's the confidence that we have in the Spirit, that he will do the same for us. Verse 15, he says, For all things are for your sakes, that the abundant grace might through the thanksgiving of many redound to the glory of God. For which cause we faint not, but though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. Now there he's talking about that, that those problems that you have, the hardships that you have in your life, that the outward man is having all these difficulties, but inside the Holy Spirit is there and he's working in you and, he, and he's doing what God wants in you. Verse 17, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at things which are seen, but at things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. 
And I think you get that, don't you? The things of this life are going to pass away. Everything that we see here is not going to mount to anything anyway. So we don't look at that. We look at the things or we're looking for the things that we cannot see. These are the eternal things. These are the things of heaven. And he goes on in the, second, in the fifth chapter and he says, For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands eternal in the heavens. Now there he is saying that this life is not all there is, that if we lose this life, we haven't really lost anything because if this earthly house is dissolved, if it goes into the grave, no worries. Because we have an eternal home in the heavens. Verse 2, he says, For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house which is from heaven. Now, do you see how that parallels Romans 8? The whole creation groans, waiting for the redemption of the body. We are waiting for the glorification of the body. And that's when we receive the house for our souls, that redeemed body that is like the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 3 he says, if so, if so be that being clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we that are in this tabernacle do groan, being burdened. Not for that we would be unclothed, but clothed upon, that mortality might be swallowed up of life. And then listen to the great promise he puts on the end of that. Now he that hath wrought for us the selfsame thing is God, who also hath given unto us the earnest of the Spirit. And that's telling us that the Holy Spirit is God's pledge that although we have to go through all of this suffering and persecution and hardships, we will be relieved of the burden. We groan. Our souls are in the in the tumult of anxiousness. But the Spirit is there to quiet us and to let us know that there is a direct line of communication with God. That we can rely on him, we can talk to him, and he'll come to our aid. He's in control. Now let me close with this. In um, November, we had an election on the first Tuesday of the month. And on the first Wednesday of the month, we were here in church. And after I finished preaching the message, uh, message on that Wednesday night, there was someone going out the door, and this person said to me, I'm so glad that you didn't talk about politics tonight. And the reason this person said that to me is because the outcome of the election was so bad that they didn't really want to hear anything about it. So on Sunday after the election, I was asked about prayer, and I was asked about God's will in prayer. And if it is God's will that the president was reelected, and I would say that it was, because God is in control of all government, he's in control of all things, so God's will is done, so President Obama was reelected. But I was asked this question, are we still to pray that his immoral policy should be overthrown? Is all lost because there was a poor outcome to the election? Well, my first thought on that is to say that there could be no good outcome to the election. Because it didn't matter who you voted for. Uh, one might have been a little bit better than the other, but still what we had was two godless men that were running for president of our country. One's a Mormon. He doesn't know God. One's... Might as well be an atheist as far as I'm concerned. He doesn't know anything about God. So how do we pray in such matters? Well, we keep praying this way, that God's kingdom will come. That's what Jesus taught us to pray. Pray that God's kingdom will come because that's the answer to all of the problems that we're going through. Pray that God's will will be done. And we can't see what lies ahead. We, we don't know what's going to happen. 
We don't know what God is doing, but we take comfort in this, that the Holy Spirit is always directing the affairs of the world as he sees fit. So the government of the United States is not going to dampen my enthusiasm for Christ. I might groan and wonder how the economy will do. And I may wonder and groan about how America is reacting morally. I groan because we have a president that seems to have no conscience and American people that have no conscience when they can murder little babies. I may groan about all of those things. It looks bad, doesn't it? But imagine how bad it would be if God just completely withdrew his Holy Spirit from the world altogether. Do you know the Bible tells us he's going to do that? He will do that during the time of tribulation. And you talk about a mess. Things are going to be in a mess. So what I look at is I know that God has a plan. These things don't worry me. The outcome of, elect, of elections may be in a way personally disappointing at times. And, but those things don't really worry me. I, I don't understand all that God is doing. But I do know this. He always does all things well. And so for now... The Holy Spirit just keeps me content that as the church does its work through the power of the Holy Spirit, that God's will is being done. And that's really the only thing I need to concern myself with. If we die today, what does it matter? We have heaven as our home. But we have the Holy Spirit now living in us. We know the Bible teaches this. This is just as good as being in heaven because he said, in this sense, because he's telling us that you are right now citizens of that heavenly kingdom. You belong there. So it doesn't matter what happens. We have a home in the heavens. We look at the temporal things now, but the things of God are eternal. And that's great hope. And the Holy Spirit is in you to make you realize that. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, this uh, work of the Holy Spirit that we have in our lives, the, just the blessing that we have to be able to come to you in prayer. Uh, we, we just can't describe how our hearts are thrilled by that and to know there really is no reason for us to worry about things if we keep our eyes on you and we realize that, that you are in control of all that happens in the world. You'll never do wrong by us. We're your children and you promise to be faithful to us. And we believe that. And the Holy Spirit shows us that you will. Father, thank you for this. Uh, bless us as we sing tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.